Section 10 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 10. The blow was quickly followed up. A few days later it was moved that all subjects of England had equal right to trade to the East Indies unless prohibited by act of Parliament, and the supporters of the old company, sensible that they were in a minority, suffered the motion to pass without a division. This memorial vote settled the most important of the constitutional questions which had been left unsettled by the Bill of Rights. It has ever since been held to be the sound doctrine that no power but that of the whole legislature can give to any person or to any society an exclusive privilege of trading to any part of the world. The opinion of the great majority of the House of Commons was that the Indian trade could be advantageously carried on only by means of a joint stock and a monopoly. It might therefore have been expected that the resolution which destroyed the monopoly of the old company would have been immediately followed by a law granting a monopoly to the new company. No such law, however, was passed. The old company, though not strong enough to defend its own privileges, was able, with the help of its Tory friends, to prevent the rival association from obtaining similar privileges. The consequence was that, during some years, there was nominally a free trade with India. In fact, the trade still lay under severe restrictions. The private adventurer found, indeed, no difficulty in sailing from England, but his situation was as perilous as ever when he had turned the Cape of Good Hope. Whatever respect might be paid to a vote of the House of Commons by public functionaries in London, such a vote was, at Bombay or Calcutta, much less regarded than a private letter from Child, and Child still continued to fight the battle with unbroken spirit. He sent out to the factories of the companies orders that no indulgence should be shown to the intruders. For the House of Commons and for its resolutions he expressed the bitterest contempt. Be guided by my instructions, he wrote, and not by the nonsense of a few ignorant country gentlemen who have hardly wit enough to manage their own private affairs and who know nothing at all about questions of trade. It appears that his directions were obeyed. Everywhere in the East, during this period of anarchy, servant of the company, and the independent merchant waged war on each other, accused each other of piracy, and tried by every artifice to exasperate the Mughal government against each other. The three great constitutional questions of the preceding year were, in this year, again brought under the consideration of Parliament. In the first week of the session, a bill for the regulation of trials in cases of high treason, a triennial bill, and a place bill were laid on the table of the House of Commons. None of these bills became a law. The first passed the Commons, but was unfavorably received by the peers. William took so much interest in the question that he came down to the House of Lords, not in his crown and robes, but in the ordinary dress of a gentleman, and sat through the whole debate on the second reading. Caramarthen spoke of the dangers to which the state was at that time exposed and entreated his brethren not to give, at such a moment, impunity to traitors. 
he was powerfully supported by two eminent orators who had during some years been on the uncourtly side of every question but who in this session showed a disposition to strengthen the hands of the government halifax and mulgrave marlborough rochester and nottingham spoke for the bill but the general feeling was so clearly against them that they did not venture to divide it is probable however that the reasons urged by caramarthen were not the reasons which chiefly swayed his hearers the peers were fully determined that the bill should not pass without a clause altering the constitution of the court of the lord high steward they knew that the lower house was as fully determined not to pass such a clause and they thought it better that what must happen at last should happen speedily and without a quarrel the fate of the triennial bill confounded all the calculations of the best informed politicians of that time and may therefore well seem extraordinary to us during the recess that bill had been described in numerous pamphlets written for the most part by persons zealous for the revolution and for popular principles of government as the one thing needful as the universal cure for the distempers of the state on the first second and third readings in the house of commons no division took place the whigs were enthusiastic the tories seemed to be acquiescent it was understood that the king though he had used his veto for the purpose of giving the houses an opportunity of reconsidering the subject had no intention of offering a pertinacious opposition to their wishes but seymour with a cunning which long experience had matured after deferring the conflict to the last moment snatched the victory from his adversaries when they were most secure when the speaker held up the bill in his hands and put the question whether it should pass the nose were a hundred and forty-six the eyes only a hundred and thirty-six some eager whigs flattered themselves that their defeat was the effect of a surprise and might be retrieved within three days therefore monmouth the most ardent and restless man in the whole party brought into the upper house a bill substantially the same with that which had so strangely miscarried in the lower the peers passed this bill very expeditiously and set it down to the commons but in the commons it found no favor many members who professed to wish that the duration of parliaments should be limited resented the interference of the hereditary branch of the legislature in a matter which peculiarly concerned the elective branch the subject they said is one which especially belongs to us we have considered it we have come to a decision and it is scarcely parliamentary it is certainly most indelicate in their lordships to call upon us to reverse that decision the question now is not whether the duration of parliaments ought to be limited but whether we ought to submit our judgment to the authority of the peers and to rescind at their bidding what we did only a fortnight ago the animosity with which the patrician order was regarded was inflamed by the arts and the eloquence of seymour the bill contained a definition of the words to hold a parliament this definition was scrutinized with extreme jealousy and was thought by many with very little reason to have been framed for the purpose of extending the privileges already invidiously great of the nobility it appears from the scanty and obscure fragments of the debates which have come down to us that bitter reflections were thrown on the general conduct both political and judicial of the peers old titus though zealous for triennial parliaments 
owned that he was not surprised at the ill-humor which many gentlemen showed. It is true, he said, that we ought to be dissolved, but it is rather hard, I must own, that the lords are to prescribe the time of our dissolution. The Apostle Paul wished to be dissolved, but, I doubt, if his friends had set him a day, he would not have taken it kindly of them. The bill was rejected by a 197 votes to 127. The place bill, differing very little from the place bill which had been brought in twelve months before, passed easily through the Commons. Most of the Tories supported it warmly, and the Whigs did not venture to oppose it. It went up to the Lords, and soon came back completely changed. As it had been originally drawn, it provided that no member of the House of Commons, elected after the 1st of January, 1694, should accept any place of profit under the crown, on pain of forfeiting his seat, and of being incapable of sitting again in the same Parliament. The Lords had added the words, unless he be afterwards again chosen to serve in the same Parliament. These words, few as they were, sufficed to deprive the bill of nine-tenths of its efficacy, both for the good and for the evil. It was most desirable that the crowd of subordinate public functionaries should be kept out of the House of Commons. It was most undesirable that the heads of the great executive department should be kept out of that House. The bill, as altered, left that House open both to those who ought and to those who ought not have been admitted. It very properly let in the Secretaries of State and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but it let in with them Commissioners of Wine Licenses and Commissioners of the Navy, Receivers, Surveyors, Storekeepers, Clerks of the Axe, and Clerks of the Check, Clerks of the Green Cloth, and Clerks of the Great Wardrobe. So little did the Commons understand what they were about that, after framing a law, in one view most mischievous, and in another view most beneficial, they were perfectly willing that it should be transformed into a law quite harmless and almost useless. They agreed to the amendment, and nothing was now wanting but the royal sanction. The sanction certainly ought not to have been withheld, and probably would not have been withheld, if William had known how unimportant the bill now was. But he understood the question as little as the commons themselves. He knew that they imagined that they had devised a most stringent limitation of the royal power, and he was determined not to submit, without a struggle, to any such limitation. He was encouraged by the success with which he had hitherto resisted the attempts of the two houses to encroach on his prerogative. He had refused to pass the bill which quartered the judges on his hereditary revenue, and the Parliament had silently acquiesced in the justice of the refusal. He had refused to pass the triennial bill, and the Commons had since, by rejecting two triennial bills, acknowledged that he had done well. He ought, however, to have considered that, on both these occasions, the announcement of his refusal was immediately followed by the announcement that the Parliament was prorogued. On both these occasions, therefore, the members had half a year to think and to grow cool before the next sitting. The case was now very different. The principal business of the session was hardly begun. Estimates were still under consideration. Bills of supply were still depending. And, if the houses should take a fit of ill-humor, the consequences might be serious indeed. He resolved, however, to run the risk. 
whether he had any adviser is not known his determination seems to have taken both the leading whigs and the leading tories by surprise when the clerk had proclaimed that the king and queen would consider of the bill touching free and impartial proceedings in parliament the commons retired from the bar of the lords in a resentful and ungovernable mood as soon as the speaker was again in his chair there was a long and tempestuous debate all other business was postponed all committees were adjourned it was resolved that the house would early the next morning take into consideration the state of the nation when the morning came the excitement did not appear to have abated the mace was sent to westminster hall and in the court of requests all members who could be found were brought into the house that none might be able to steal away unnoticed the back door was locked and the key laid on the table all strangers were ordered to retire with these solemn preparations began a sitting which reminded a few old men of some of the first sittings of the kong parliament high words were uttered by the enemies of the government its friends afraid of being accused of abandoning the cause of the commons of england for the sake of the royal favor hardly ventured to raise their voices montague alone seemed to have defended the king lowther though high in office and a member of the cabinet owned that there were evil influences at work and expressed a wish to see the sovereign surrounded by counsellors in whom the representatives of the people could confide harley foley and howe carried everything before them a resolution affirming that those who had advised the crown on this occasion were public enemies was carried with only two or three noes harley after reminding his hearers that they had their negative voice as the king had his and that if his majesty refused then redress they could refuse him money moved that they should go up to the throne not as usual with a humble address but with a representation some members proposed to substitute the more respectful word address but they were overruled and a committee was appointed to draw up the representation another night passed and when the house met again it appeared that the storm had greatly subsided the malignant joy and the wild hopes which the jacobites had during the last forty-eight hours expressed with their usual imprudence had incensed and alarmed the whigs and the moderate tories many members too were frightened by hearing that william was fully determined not to yield without an appeal to the nation such an appeal might have been successful for a disillusion on any ground whatever would at that moment have been a highly popular exercise of the prerogative the constituent bodies it was well known were generally zealous for the triennial bill and cared comparatively little about the place bill many tory members therefore who had recently voted against the triennial bill were by no means desirous to run the risks of a general election when the representation which harley and his friends had prepared was read it was thought offensively strong after being recommitted shortened and softened it was presented by the whole house william's answer was kind and gentle but he conceded nothing he assured the commons that he remembered with gratitude the support which he had on many occasions received from them and he should always consider their advice as most valuable and that he should look on counsellors who might attempt to raise dissension between him and his parliament as his enemies 
but he uttered not a word which could be construed into an acknowledgment that he had used his veto ill, or into a promise that he would not use it again. The commons on the morrow took his speech into consideration. Harley and his allies complained that the king's answer was no answer at all, threatened to tack the place bill to a money bill, and proposed to make a second representation pressing his majesty to explain himself more distinctly. But by this time there was a strong reflux of feeling in the assembly. The Whigs had not only recovered from their dismay, but were in high spirits and eager for conflict. Wharton, Russell, and Littleton maintained that the House ought to be satisfied with what the King had said. Do you wish, said Littleton, to make sport for your enemies? There was no want of them. They besiege our very doors. We read, as we come through the lobby, in the face and gestures of every non-juror whom we pass, delight at the momentary coolness which has arisen between us and the king. That should be enough for us. We may be sure that we are voting rightly when we give a vote which tends to confound the hopes of traitors. The house divided, Harley was a teller on one side, Wharton on the other. Only eighty-eight voted with Harley, two hundred and twenty-nine with Wharton. The Whigs were so much elated by their victory that some of them wished to move a vote of thanks to William for his gracious answer. But they were restrained by a wiser man. We have lost time enough already in these unhappy debates, said a leader of the party. Let us get to ways and means as fast as we can. The best form which our thanks can take is that for a money bill. Thus ended, more happily than William had right to expect, one of the most dangerous contests in which he ever engaged with his Parliament. At the Dutch Embassy the rising and going down of this tempest had been watched with intense interest, and the opinion there seems to have been that the King had, on the whole, lost neither power nor popularity by his conduct. Another question, which excited scarcely less angry feelings in the Parliament and in the country, was, about the same time, under consideration. On the 6th of December, a Whig member of the House of Commons obtained leave to bring in a bill for the naturalization of foreign Protestants. Plausible arguments in favor of such a bill were not wanting. Great numbers of people, eminently industrious and intelligent, firmly attached to our faith, and deadly enemies of our deadly enemies, were at that time without a country. Among the Huguenots, who had fled from the tyranny of the French king, were many persons of great fame in war, in letters, in arts, and in sciences, and even the humblest refugees were intellectually and morally above the average of the common people of any kingdom in Europe. With French Protestants who had been driven into exile by the edicts of Louis, were now mingled German Protestants who had been driven into exile by his arms. Vienna, Berlin, Basel, Hamburg, Amsterdam, London, swarmed with honest laborious men who had once been thriving burghers of Heidelberg or Mannheim, or who had cultivated vineyards along the banks of the Neckar and the Rhine. A statesman might well think that it would be at once generous and politic to invite to the English shores and to incorporate with the English people immigrants so unfortunate and so respectable. Their ingenuity and their diligence could not fail to enrich any land which should afford them an asylum, nor could it be doubted that they would manfully defend the country of their adoption 
against him whose cruelty had driven them from the country of their birth. End of section 10. Recording by Hugh Gillis.